0: Welcome to season two of EdTech Insiders, where we talk to the most interesting thought leaders, founders, entrepreneurs, educators, and investors driving the future of education technology. I'm your host, Alex Sarlin, an EdTech veteran with over 10 years of experience at top EdTech
1: companies. Hi, everybody. It is the week in EdTech. I'm your host, Ben Cornell, along with my co host Alex Sarlin. We're so excited to have you here today. It is January 20th, only a few days from your birthday and my birthday, Alex, and we have a lot to celebrate and a lot going on in both the world and with the podcast. Tell us what's going on with EdTech Insiders and then also like what's going on in the world today.
0: Yeah, I mean, on the interview side of the podcast, we have a great interview coming up with Vadim Polikov from Legends of Learning, giant game-based education platform, as well as with Laurel Taylor, who does, candidly, a student debt platform, which is obviously really relevant right now, and uh, talking about some of the changes in the U.S. debt system is really interesting stuff. But what's happening in the news, so much. I mean, what we're going to be covering today, it's going to include... Bans on Chat GPT, bans on TikTok, schools kind of panicking over the new tech there. Reed Hastings checking in on the ed tech world and then stepping away from Netflix. There's so much going on in big tech. We're, there's some VR stories that are happening right now, including some some big funding rounds. And then we wanted to cover our you know friends of the Pod Transcend Network. They put together some really really amazing predictions for this year, so we wanted to work through those as well and, and make sure we we're uh, we're giving them you know their props where they're
1: due. Ben, why don't you kick off? Where should we start? I mean, I will just say also on top of that, we've got college closures, we've got baiju's doing in person tons of motion in K-12 around Project Unicorn and this unified orientation around uh, interoperability. Biden administration is doing a bunch on community schools as well as the debt is, you know, student debt is still TBD. Florida banning AP African-American studies. It is just like, I don't know if we can do the week in ed tech anymore. We're going to have to do the day in ed tech. But I think we should start (laughs) with that first story, which is really AI, ChatGPT, also TikTok, this kind of reactionary moment we have with education organizations from K-12 to higher ed banning the use of tools. First and foremost, there's an article in Forbes, and it talks about ChatGPT and AI will fuel the new ed tech boom. So there's a lot of optimism in the space. And we've shared that optimism with all of you listeners. I think in November, we were like geeking out over ChatGPT. And yet at the same time, we're seeing Seattle, LA, New York, DC, Alabama, banning ChatGPT. We also see quite a few higher ed organizations banning TikTok, along with US concerns around TikTok. I think they're Somewhat different items and somewhat the same, which is really how are education systems going to orient towards these new technologies? And of course, in our little bubble, we're hearing lots of, hey, this is the future. Schools and school systems should adapt. But outside of our bubble, it's very clear that school administrators and systems are saying, this is not okay. This is not allowed. As you're hearing all of this play out, what's your take, and how do you think this is going to evolve in the next few months?
0: It's so interesting to watch all these school systems and some higher ed systems just see this new technology coming, and rather than sort of look inward, start to really just panic. There was a really interesting article in the New York Times this week about how some universities are really starting to think about, in in the face of ChatGPT, maybe they should teach differently. Maybe they shouldn't ask questions like, summarize this paper in three pages, because they know that uh, kids are going to do it on ChatGPT. And that actually might be a very good thing. I mean, most of the learning designers I've uh, connected with are like, this is great for schooling, because it's going to make people get out of those lazy habits of asking people to do very low-level thinking that really can be outsourced. It could already be kind of outsourced to Google, Or Wikipedia, and now it's going to be outsourced to ChatGPT. We have a great guest later in the podcast, uh, Mateo Elvira from Elvira Media, and we're going to ask him about his take on ChatGPT because he does marketing and he thinks that, you know, AI and ChatGPT are really valuable for all sorts of jobs, including marketing. I mean, I'm incredibly bullish on these tools. I don't think, I think it's such a silly reaction for schools to see this come out and within weeks of it coming out, literally, Just shut it down. It just shows they don't understand it. They don't want to deal with it. They don't feel like they have the uh, speed at which to change or sort of pivot and just see it as a pure risk to their current models, which is just, I think it's sad. There's also, you know, an interesting story about a a senior at Princeton University uh, named Edward Tian, who's already built an app called GPT-Zero to detect whether text is written by ChatGPT. And it's obviously trying to get ahead of this plagiarism fear in in academia and also in K-12. I think this is so silly. I personally, I don't know. I mean, it reminds me of when cell phones first came out in schools and school's initial reaction was just, okay, we are not going to let these kids bring them to school. We're going to put them in a locker. We're going to put them in a bag. We, you know, If we catch a kid with a cell phone in school, we're going to confiscate it
1: till the end of the week. I am wondering, you know, when COVID hit, we thought, ah, this is the leverage point where things will all change. And then, know. you know, last year, maybe to a smaller degree, it was like metaverse and, you know, web three, like teaching and learning is going to change. Clearly <laughs> after COVID, it was a snapback to reality. And I would say metaverse right now is like on a slow simmer where it's like, this is not going to be the kind of overnight catalytic change. And I think there's, you know, where, where I was in November and December with my chat GPT experience, it felt like one of those iPhone moments where you're like, "Whoa, this, I've known about AI, but the use case now is so clear and prevalent. And as Mateo will probably talk about, you know, marketing, like anything that has to do with communications is going to be much easier. Do you think that this is going to be this catalytic change where those schools and institutions that understand how to lean into transforming the learning experience will win and thrive, and those that don't won't? Or is this actually the same story just yet again, possibility averted by our systems doing things the same old way they've always done? How do you think
0: that's going to play out? You probably will know my response to that, which is I'm going to take the the over on that, which, you know, that famous quote from Bill Gates about, you know, you overestimate how fast things will change in the short term and underestimate how fast they'll change in the long term. I think that really applies here. I mean, these schools, (laughs) let's put it this way. When schools and students start getting in technological wars, you always bet on the students. Always, and when the, these schools that are trying to ban ban ChatGPT, I mean Seattle banned it on all school devices. That means all devices in the Wi-Fi at school and at probably any device that kids are bringing home that are school issued. But kids have their own devices. They're going to go to ChatGPT to do their homework. They're going to. They're already doing it. It's a, such a performative act to pretend that you know that you can actually stop kids who are totally digital native from using the coolest, most cutting edge technology. So I think schools will throw a big panicky fit and turn it Turnitin will introduce an AI tool and there'll be all sorts of nonsense to try to shut this down. And then within three years, it'll be completely accepted as part of the education system and people will start to change. Now, Will they really improve their learning design that much? Will they really completely rethink every assignment? No, they probably won't. But I think it'll be the beginning of a reevaluation of change, just the way that Google was. I mean, years ago, homework was would say, hey, find out this answer. This is your homework. Find out the yeah, answer. Go to an
1: Encyclopedia and look it up. Or, yeah, I, mean, nice I remember like, learning the codes in the library <laughs> the library of Congress <laughs> codes to figure out which subject, you know, I will say this to me feels different compared to COVID, which was an externality and metaverse, which is really like a container or construct. This is a capability and AI as a capability unlocked has a couple huge implications. One, in any kind of arms race on technology, the rate of change is just going up. Exponentially fast. And we don't need a lecture on you know Moore's Law to understand that, but we're there's visceral experience in the education sector now of Moore's Law, where just three months from now, a year from now, should OpenAI decide to keep things open and spreading it, or should someone else? We're going to see leaps forward in this the capabilities here. And just as there will be monitoring and policing software, there's going to be infinite amounts of workaround software. I will also say exactly. the big difference here is that the next, so on AI there's hard tech and there's soft tech. Hard tech is building the AI systems, super expensive, heavy compute required, gotta have a lot of technical expertise and there is no doubt going to be a small number of big, big winners in that space. But on the soft tech side, your ability with a three-person team or a one-person team or a five-person team to create an application that is totally capability-wise game-changing, you've just really brought down the barrier. And so we will unleash the like swarm, uh, like the negative would be like, it's a swarm of bees and you're going to be whacking in the air, but there's no way you're going to be able to stop the swarm. It is basically, I think, this rising tide that's going to lift all boats. My biggest concern is that these bans, and let's look at it, L.A., New York, D.C., who do these districts serve? They serve low-income kids. They're the ones who are going to get the bands and not learn dynamically how to integrate these new tools and technologies into their capabilities. Notice that we're not talking about Exeter and Andover, Blocking ChatGPT, they're probably already having a Socratic seminar on like ethical use of AI in extending human life. And we have institutions that are dynamic because they they're responsive to the needs of learners and parents. And then we have institutions that are not dynamic because they're responsive to political employment and like, you know, civic dynamics that are not about empowering kids. And so I would just say for those equity warriors out there who think ChatGPT is not an issue I care about, it should be. Because if your kid as a fourth grader, fifth grader, sixth grader, isn't learning how AI works and how to activate it, how to leverage it to get your job or career or do your creative video or whatever it may be, you are creating a new technological divide and we just got computers and internet connectivity to everyone. So it, like, why recreate the divide now? And I, so I'm just like, you know, facepalm moment.
0: I totally agree. That was that was a really great analysis. And I, I love that tie between the AI and, and the sort of equity. I, I totally agree. Just one last point, and then we'll we'll move to our next story, which is really interesting, which is about, I just had the opportunity to interview Kian Katan-Farouche from WorkEra. And he talked very eloquently about exactly the dynamic you just said, where, you know, he's like, ChatGPT is about to have APIs. And then people can use it in any context, but they can limit its use, they can constrain it, they can tailor it to whatever it's got to be, and they'll be used for every different use case. And that mirrors what we've seen in AI for the last 15 years, where these tools become They go from being super specialized, you know, hard tech to soft tech, usually to APIs, which then can be called by people who don't have that level of expertise. And then they can use, you know, Amazon's or Google's or, you know, incredibly high level AI in their particular context. And this is coming very fast. This year, we're going to see hundreds of of companies in education and elsewhere doing exactly that.
1: Both of us are on the train of this is a legit game changer. I will also say you know that i think a lot about the staffing shortages it's a recurring topic we need futurists in our schools and universities as the educators it's like gone are the days where you have somebody who's never worked outside of a school building and never understood industry who is like fearful of technology or turning on the computer or any of that stuff which by the way like lots of love to mrs kurtz and all the great teachers I had who were like classic old school. There's so much value there, but we need to find that right blend between like core pedagogy that works and people in the building. And it doesn't have to be all educators. It does. It could be one person. It could be, but we need a mix of people that are thinking about where things are going in the future because the pace of changes is, is so fast that even kids learning about this stuff, knowing that in five years, it'll all be irrelevant anyways, it will create the kind of citizens of the future that can thrive in a dynamic environment. Speaking of dynamic environment, tell us about what's going on in big tech and how it relates to our ed tech winter. It is really interesting. So,
0: you know, we've Noted on podcasts over the last few months, I guess, that tech has been big tech and technology world in the US especially has been going through a massive shift. Uh, There's been over 150,000 layoffs in big tech in 2022. But a couple of the really, really big companies were not yet doing it. They were sort of holding out. They weren't following this sort of bandwagon and moving towards profitability and bossism, as some some uh, reporters call it. This week, we saw a couple of big dominoes fall. We saw layoffs from Microsoft in the tens of thousands, you know, 10,000 plus and we saw uh, Google layoffs in the uh, multiple thousands. And you know, these are enormous companies. So both of their layoffs are not a huge percentage of the workforce. I was kind of hoping that some of the really, really big tech companies would not just follow this slim down uh, approach, which I think is like a fad, frankly, I, I don't think it's really like, based on any logic, it's just fear of the future and recession, and people are just freaking out. But we see Google and Microsoft shutting things down. And as Listeners of the pod know Google and Microsoft are two of the companies that are that are really have a lot of power in in education. And of course, the education portions of their businesses are not their most money making portions. You're you're not you're going to you're going to let go of people on education rather than on Xbox or, or you know, ad sales. So I think it's going to be a little bit of a break on what's already an ed tech winter. That said, we may flip that around and we'll talk later in the pod about how maybe these layoffs are actually going to create a whole generation of entrepreneurs with great tech experience that maybe want to do something really good for the world, like education.
1: I always love your positive spin on the upside potential, yeah. <laughs>
0: it's, this I'm borrowing from our, our friend Alberto. I, I had not thought of layoffs as being a boon, but he had a good take. And I, I want to borrow his optimism. You know, The other big tech story this week is is that Minerva University and the Minerva Project received a $20 million donation specifically from Reed Hastings, the CEO of Netflix, who's been a champion of Minerva in the past. That's a big, you know, donation and it's going to really help them sustain both the university and grow the project where they support other colleges in, you know, in sort of innovating and moving to new models. So that's really a nice thing for EdTech. At the same time, we saw Reed Hastings step down as the CEO of Netflix, which is huge news in the tech world. He is the I believe the founder of Netflix has been there forever and has really been the sort of visionary driving force behind the company. So this is fresh off the presses. I have not read a whole lot of hot takes on it, but I think it's going to happen because that is a that's a big deal and Netflix is, you know, a company that's redefined a lot of things in tech. So that that's our sort of big tech roundup. What do you think about these stories, Ben?
1: A couple hot takes from me and of course, you know, I think smarter people will weigh in on all of this, but you know, Netflix is both a tech company and a media company. And we're basically seeing a tech winter and a media winter. And I think the media winter is far worse because advertising revenue is not, you know, going to replace subscription revenue. So you basically had these like large cable companies who had huge businesses with massive margins. And that was traded off for streaming, which was very high revenue growth from a subscription standpoint but negative margins and the idea was that eventually that could convert to profitability and then the subscription bottom has fallen out and now the ads business they're coming back to it and it's way way lower because google and other online search have taken over meanwhile er, you know short form video creator video on tiktok and youtube are eating everybody's lunch. So it's uh, it's a really dark time over on the media side. You know, anybody who's thinking about revenue is really worried. And anybody who's on the kind of high budget, long form content side is worried about, you know, budgets getting cut. On the big tech side, I have a little bit of a different take than you. I think that these big tech companies have had massive blows. I mean, just trying to get a meeting with Google, you got to talk to 15 people and it takes like six months. I know people who've been hiring processes with Google for over a year. It's just, you know, the charm of, you know, we have cafeterias and we'll do your laundry here and look at us, wear the fun hats. Like that doesn't get you very far today. And on top of it, they've attracted a bunch of people who have kind of gravitated towards the safety, security, high comp, you know, soft, you know, circumstances. And I have no doubt that there are just, and I personally know people who are really hardcore, who work hard and are delivering great value in companies like Google, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Microsoft, and so on. But I also know that they often are aware of, you know, the 50 people they have to go through to get just a simple initiative passed. So I really hope, you know, Silicon Valley kind of does this, you know, HP was like the darling long ago and whatever company it is, you know, Apple's been surprisingly enduring, but whatever company it is, they kind of have their moment and then they kind of have a downfall as they get too big for their britches. And I would just say I really am impressed with Microsoft. I would have bet on them being like an old technology that's, you know, old technology company that's going to be out of things. But, you know, when Satya, the CEO first arrived, he made a bunch of cuts. You know, that was like a decade ago. He's making other cuts now and they've made the big bet in open AI. They're kind of emerging from this as a much stronger player. Okay. And then third take is. I've been screaming from the top of my lungs. Google is the biggest ed tech company in the world. Like, look at these big tech companies coming into the learning space. And I've largely been an advocate for entrepreneurs who end up getting their businesses crushed by this free thing that never has to make money because it's a user acquisition tool. It's not getting the kind of investment or intention from these big companies and I think now we're going to, you know, we're starting to see who's getting laid off and we're starting to see that companies are cutting their ed- education sides and investments. And that will have a lot of near-term negative effect for students, for schools that are relying on these products and services. But it could also have an, a revitalizing effect for edtech entrepreneur community because, we really care about this and we're really investing in solutions that cater to the needs of users. And so having some of the big tech and also generalist VC capital out of our space might actually help us get reset and back on a good track. So it it may be, we kind of had EdTech winter early. We had it on the front end because COVID kind of crashed down on us, like post-COVID crashed down on us first. But maybe there's an opportunity that we kind of come out of winter to spring sooner than the, the big tech companies. So, you know, a little bit of optimism. On exactly.
0: This. I was like, hey, that there's a silver lining. Not, who's the optimist? Now?
1: Yeah, I don't think these employees are going to all go to EdTech, unfortunately. I think when you get laid off, you look for stability. And that's just not something that we tend to offer in ed, the EdTech startup community or in school systems or in universities these days.
0: Yes, but where are they going to go? I mean, Stripe, Chime, like everybody did layoffs. I mean, part of why I think there's a little bit of a fad nature to this is that the entire tech industry is doing it at exactly the same time. You know, it's, it would be one thing if Microsoft laid off 10,000 people and Google picked up 3,000 of them, but that's not what's happening. They're all like, oh, we just got the, they call it permission structure, right? In politics, we just got the permission to lay off 10,000 people and not look like jerks. So they're doing it. That's how I feel.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. And they probably shouldn't hire all the people that they hired in the last two or three years as well. Both can be true. So next up, we talk about big tech. We're excited about the opportunities in, in AI. But VR has been a little bit of a divisive concept. Some people say VR is going to transform experiential learning. Others say it does harm to kids because it rewires their brain or it, it undermines the efficacy of real teaching and learning in exchange for game-based. I think we are on the verge of some really exciting VR developments in our space. And two announcements this week, Dreamscape Learn raised 20 million in funding from a host of folks, including Deb Quazo joining the board. She's the kind of lead at GSV. And then Joyful Math from Prism's VR going to the Meta Store. We announced previously that Andreessen and Horowitz had invested in their latest round. So is this actually a moment where VR is on the rise? You've been following this pretty closely, um, both VR and Metaverse. What's your take?
0: I think that these two announcements are interesting in tandem because they actually have pretty different Versions of VR. Dreamscape Learn is coming out of an entertainment style VR. It's extremely high fidelity, story based, narrative, immersive. They have this alien zoo product and then they're making an educational version of it. It's really sort of going for the, the, the real wow factor. And then Prism's VR is going for the real school use factor. It's standards aligned. It's aligned to grades, you know, eight to 12. It's designed for both school and home use. It's trying to, you know, align itself to actually be usable in a school district, you know, capacity. Obviously, Dreamscape learned wants that as well, but that's sort of the goal of the Prisms VR push right now—the launch and the look of it is a little clunkier. I mean, just from what I've seen so far, it's a, it looks a little less polished than a, what you see from a Dreamscape, and so it's a, it's two different versions of VR, and I find that interesting because I think that that schism is sort of part of what has kept VR from sort of blowing up you know, up till now. I think there's like this unpredictability of what you're going to get when you get into a VR experience. A lot of people have never done it at all. And the people who have, sometimes it's mind blowing, and sometimes it's a little underwhelming. And I think it keeps the whole field from sort of being accepted as something that's like, where there's a real there there. I'm, you know, mildly bullish on VR, but only if the sort of companies that are both these education companies and the companies that make the headsets really get a little wiser about making sure that people know what to expect and know why they would go to VR because it's it's not something you know, you have to invest in it on purpose, unlike something like chat where it's just going to wash over everybody, you know, you have to decide to go into VR and they just really need to make it clear what the upsides of that are and why it's worth the money. I think I think both of these are trying to do it, but in different ways. One is saying, teach those math concepts, get people to actually be engaged, get them to, you know, Prisms talks about a 10% increase in outcomes due to their product. That's really exciting, you know, for schools. And then Dreamscape is like... You're going to blow these kids' minds, and that can be a, that can be an upside too. So I'm bullish, but I I think the the field is still very fragmented. It doesn't have a sort of a unified stance on what VR in education is, and I think that's actually
1: holding. It yeah, point. such a great and nuanced take. And I think your point around you know is highly produced content going to be winning, or is like scrappier content with maybe more quantity or more like, you know, bite-sized components? Is that going to win or could both? And by the way, we should also clarify, Dreamscape is going after more, it looks more like higher ed. They're partnered with ASU, Arizona State, whereas Joyful Math is really going for a middle and high school. So there also might be some market variances there. I think the themes, some takeaways and lessons learned One is that for VR to work in the education context, there's got to be an in-headset experience coupled with an out-of-headset experience. And what I like about both these companies, I also have demoed Lighthouse. I've looked at a couple other VR experiences. People are starting to realize that if you get a great experiential anchor in the headset for 15, 20 minutes that then is supported by curriculum that uses the data that has kids do like off VR analysis and often teamwork, group projects, things like that, you actually are creating the container where the VR is but a vehicle for uh, the learning. Second, I'd say we're learning that the kind of retention of experiences in VR headsets, is just way higher than the retention through video, or through reading. And so the outcomes show that that anchor experience creates learning retention over time. And so often in our like test score oriented world, we learn something, we're tested on it, we forget it. And what's great about these VR experiences is that people are creating longer retention and more building blocks. And then the third thing I'd say is like, I think the use cases in math and science are proving to be stronger Right now than the use cases in history and English and, you know, humanities areas. Not that good science doesn't incorporate great writing or, or those skill sets or math as well. But the idea in science that you would have a lab and you'd have an anchor experience and then you would do work based off of that pedagogically, it's just VR is a very good fit there. And on the math side, what we understand is that kids learn math with different modalities. And so this as like an engaging interactive modality really appeals. But you know, often go back to the old school SAMR framework. If we're just doing substitution, we're not really, you know, where, you know, I might write it on a piece of paper and then I learn, you know, I just do typing on a computer. That's not transformational. It's really when we reimagine the learning and we're at the highest phases of SAMR, where you know kids who would never have access to a genetics module with flowers, or maybe to understand genetics would normally take you six months of experiments and you can do it now in 15 minutes. That kind of transformational learning, I think that's where the impact is. And I'm excited to see both of these. I had the opportunity to go down to Culver City and demo Dreamscape and meet their team. And and I even took my kids in New Jersey. They have a site where they got to ride the How You Train Your Dragons. Dragons, I mean, it was great and it was memorable for the kids and with prism i've also been able to do you know it's like really hands on application of core math concepts like slope and i do think there's a there there for these folks all right we are on to our last topic alex it's one of our hottest episodes ever was our predictions episode and then we brought on guests to do predictions And then there's like the meta predictions. I've seen a bunch of great LinkedIn's where they're like, here's five or six prediction, like articles you should read. What that stood out to us was Alberto at Transcend. Talk to us about that.
0: So Alberto Arnaza and his partner, Michael from Transcend, Keep a really sharp eye on the edtech landscape. They have a great newsletter and have, have really watched it for a long time. And they came out with their newsletter about predictions a little bit after, you know, some of the others. But it was really good. It was a really thoughtful, you know, analysis of some of the trends that we're seeing in the landscape, along with some like some boldness, some ideas of like, hey, maybe this will go in this direction. It could be really interesting. So I just wanted to give them that shout out and maybe just quickly run through their predictions because I think they're really worth thinking about for everybody here. And of course, please go read the original article on the Transcend sub stack. But, you know, so basically they say, look, mergers and acquisitions are back. Startup mergers and acquisitions are back in EdTech. We've talked about that a lot on the show. And there are actually a bunch of acquisitions even this week, but it's going to be bigger and bigger as companies run out of runway, and others, you know, scoop them up, sometimes as Aqua hires Very strong prediction, I think. They said, we're going to see 70-plus U.S. college closures this year. Really interesting. You know, there's a Heckinger Report article just this week about how colleges are, are getting really nervous about the enrollment situation, and some are really facing closure. And I think, you know, they're basically looking at the writing on the wall and saying. I don't see them pulling back in the short term. There's still a lot of headwinds, demographic ROI headwinds, a lot of things that are going to make some colleges shut down. They're saying, that, I love this phrase, 2023 is the year of boring ed tech. And by boring ed tech, they mean Kind of old fashioned techs often selling to, to school districts with long cycles or, you know, infrastructure or LMSs or, you know, big B2B partnerships and a little less of the sort of flashiness of, of the year we saw, you know, Duolingo go public and Udemy go public and all these sort of consumer styles just pop up. I'll pass the rest to you. bed. But fourth is they predict that EdTech funding will be the same in 2023 as 2022, which is an interesting prediction because, you know, the EdTech funding in 2021 was about $20 billion worldwide and about 10 in the US. And in 2022, it was 10 billion worldwide with about 5.5 or so, uh, I think 5.7 in the US. So it's half as much last year as the year before, and they're saying it's going to steady out there. And it's hard even to know if that's sort of a positive or a negative prediction, but they're basically saying they don't see any events coming that are going to either shock the edtech world again, like what we saw in China, or blow it right back up, like we've seen with the pandemic.
1: For completion, say, you know, number five, they say we'll see a rise in AI co-pilot tools. Per my comment earlier, this hard tech versus soft tech in AI, I think soft tech is incredibly exciting because people have figured out the hard tech AI. Now we're going to see a bunch of co-pilot tools. Number six, layoffs will unlock a new wave of entrepreneurial talent. Alex, you're more bullish on that. I'm a little bit more skeptical. I think the big tech layoffs, it's hard to see ed tech being able to attract the talent that are le- leaving big tech. I think that a lot of those folks are going... Back to big tech, healthcare, climate, you know, more established industries without the friction that we have right now in ed tech. And number seven, the year we rethink exams. What I liked about the year we think exams is one, the ability to cheat on the exams that we have now is just very high. Number two, confidence in exams and the validity of their outcomes, especially through an equity lens has just had like a steady drumbeat of reduced confidence over time. And number three is we have a bunch of new tools that create the potential for instant assessment. So as we think about the layers of assessment, it's generally been student is assessed by teacher, but now we can have student is assessed by AI, student is assessed by peer, student is assessed by teacher. And if we think of that as a pyramid, the teacher can be at the highest value point of that pyramid, whereas you can push down the lower and instant, the timeliness of the assessment on down that pyramid. For me, the one that I am most skeptical about is startup M&A is back. I do think we're going to see a lot of m and I also think that the companies that are eligible to acquire other companies also are struggling with capital. And so I'm seeing some private equity activity here and some VC fueled mergers and acquisitions. But if the fundamentals of a company are negative EBITDA, I don't see that company getting acquired as easily. And if it is positive EBITDA, I would tell them, don't sell now. You're positive EBITDA, like you control your future, wait two years. So I think. It's going to be a little bit more of the freeze that we see in the housing market. You know, those who are desperate to sell will have a hard time finding buyers. Those that are in a good spot will say, I'm going to wait this one out. The boring ed tech one is interesting to me. The sad part of boring ed tech is when we talk about the need for transformational teaching and learning experiences, this is basically like, don't get your hopes set on, you know, systems radically transforming people are tired they're burned out and they need to retain their people and i think that that's a bummer but probably true and then on the boring ed tech side i wonder around boring ed tech which could be like schedulers or siss or things like that if this is the year of boring ed tech which it may very well be who does that benefit the best and it's likely the private equity firms that we talked about on the last call who've basically bought up all the boring ed tech products from, you know, infrastructure, systems, learning management systems, so on. So is this like renaissance learning finally, like, you know, getting to a place where their portfolio is reaching peak value? What were the one or two that really stood out for you? I
0: liked the rethink exams one, because I think that, you know, it speaks to the conversation we had earlier where, you know, in the face of technological change, do the systems adapt or do they lock down and sort of act, you know, small C conservative and try to keep their current, try to just like sort of wall off external pieces. And I think that the type of exam software that they talk about in this prediction article is the type where th- that is trying to sort of step in to that exam moment and try to maintain some semblance of integrity via, via various types of uh, mechanisms but without, you know, it being big brotherish or, you know, hyper, hyper, mega proctored or, you know, lockdown or biometric or things like that. I like that approach. And I think that there's, I hope that there's an actual deeper rethinking of exams. The thing that I always advocate for, I think you've heard it a lot of times here, Ben, is exams should be exactly like the thing you're trying to learn. They should be as authentic as possible. And we just don't do that very much. But if that doesn't come to pass, at least maybe there can be some solutions that allow the Wikipedia's and Google's and ChatGPTs to to you know to be usable, but not to totally compromise the integrity for in a variety of different ways. And you know, I think it's it's on us as EdTech. Integrity is something I really d- cannot often get my mind around. It's not my favorite topic, but there are a lot of people in EdTech who really thrive on it, and I think it's a really interesting moment to think about what an exam could and should look like. So I like that one a lot. And I love the AI co-pilot tools for all the reasons we've already said. I think, you know, the ability to take these complicated systems and then through an API, create a really targeted solution that actually helps people in their day-to-day work or learning, really,
1: really exciting. Well, we will see how these play out. You know, one thing we should do, Alex, is probably have Alberto come on as part of our, Reflections podcast next year, and we can go back over this exact list. I think that would be really fun. I'm gonna pass the ball to you to do our rundown of both fundraisers and mergers and activities. We also wanna see you out at one of our community events on February 2nd. We have Entech Summit in the Bay Area, and February 15th, we have an event in Boston. So if you're listening to this now, and you want to go to either of those events, please reach out to us on LinkedIn or message us directly. We'd love to have you there. All right, taking us off to MA land,
0: Alex. So for our funding in MA this week, a number of different interesting deals. So the biggest funding round we saw was for Hack the Box, $55 million funding round, all about cybersecurity professionals. That's a really specific but really important and fast-growing area of EdTech. So $55 million for hack, hack the Box. We saw Sana Labs, now it's called Sana, out of Stockholm, raised $34 million. That's a LMS that that uses uh, generative AI and, and other interesting tools to really try to redefine what in-house learning looks like. And they've been around for a while, always focused on AI. So now they're moving into generative AI, $34 million for Sana, As we mentioned earlier, Dreamscape Learn, which is sort of a collaboration between ASU and Dreamscape, which creates these amazing virtual reality experiences, raised $20 million to really accelerate there. We saw Work India raise $12 million out of uh, Bangalore to look for what they're calling gray-collar talent. That's sort of mid-level talent, call centers, door-to-door sales. It's an ability to help companies find hires really quickly. it's a borderline edtech, but I think you, you can count there it's sort of a work platform. we saw a company called Supermom raise six million dollars out of Singapore that's a community platform for parents and basically is a you know collects parent data you know voluntarily in exchange for all sorts of community access. and we saw equal which is an assessment-based company. It's about hiring assessments, so Workforce Space raised $2.7 million out of uh, of Rotterdam in the Netherlands. On the merger side, we saw a number of different mergers. We saw Noodle acquire Hubble Studios, which is a South Africa-based media company. We saw Seven Mindsets acquire Base Education. This is a mindsets-based learning and well-being solution. That's what Seven Mindsets is, buying a SEL and mental health platform. So you can see the sort of synergy there. It makes sense in the SEL and mental health space. We saw 95% Group, which is a EdTech portfolio company of Leeds equity partners, acquire a reading achievement platform called Hill Reading Achievement Platform. And finally, we saw the Swedish company Albert acquire French EdTech company Holly Auli, which does language learning. For our deep dive guest today, we have Matteo Elvira. He's the founder and chief passion officer of Elvira Media, which does ed tech marketing specifically for the ed tech industry, including content and video marketing. Matteo, welcome to the pod.
2: Guys, nice, thank you so much. As a podcaster myself, it's always great to be on the other end of the mic. Appreciate you guys having me on the show.
0: Yeah, it's really great to have you here. So you specialize in ed tech marketing. Tell us about how you got into that niche and how ed tech companies should sort of think about their marketing space. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Great question. I know it's super niche, right? Like, you don't really see that many people focusing on ed tech marketing. And I think that's kind of why I'm, I'm diving into this niche specifically. So my background before building this agency, I was actually an SDR in ed tech. And when I started to realize that These principals, these superintendents, they get bombarded with outbound outreach. I mean, I've talked to principals specifically, and they probably get 10 to 15 outbound emails a day, solicitations. And at that point, like, I really wanted to figure out a better way to, you know, engage with admins, educators, superintendents. And I start to fall into more of the digital marketing, digital media stuff. And then through that kind of experience, I realized, Hey, there's a huge gap here. You know, there's got to be a better way to get in front of these like mission driven educators with the right story, with the right narrative, with the right content. And so I spent the past three years trying to figure out these problems, help edtech startups grow and and just build that brand awareness that's like so important to their to their growth and success as, as a startup. And so I've been trying to solve that problem and and help, you know, edtech startups come to the modern age, the digital age with with content marketing. So that's really the goal. And then using video, of course, as like a a big driver for that. So
1: What you say totally resonates. I feel like we have reached saturation point on so many levels. I think you know, 10, 20 years ago, a successful email campaign could get the kind of open rate and conversion that you needed, whether it was trying to convert a educator to a user or an administrator to get to demo and really set up your sales team with you know MQL's marketing qualified leads. And we now are seeing a big, big shift of what's successful. To more brand-related marketing, as well as marketing that helps people drive referrals and virality, it's almost like no one will take the direct outreach seriously. But if it's someone down the hall or someone you know on social media that they trust, that's going. You know, the influencer is really going to have uh, power. How do you see in terms of that shift? How do you see? organizations in EdTech that have been successful? What's the playbook? How do they think about that marketing arm working in concert with their sales team?
2: I mean, if you look at EdTech, right, it's a community. It's not like a traditional B2B SaaS environment. You're trying to get this product in the hands of an educator, a student. And so there has to be a story. There has to be some emotion. It has to convict something that isn't just purely transactional. And I think that's where the marketing and the storytelling comes into play. You look at startups like Scola out there. Scola is like an admission marketing tool for K-12. They are active on TikTok, Instagram Reels, YouTube. They're visiting schools. They're making videos about it. They're building a community around their users. And they're turning their brand into a media company. And when most startups, especially ed tech startups, aren't even on social media, period. There's just a huge competitive advantage to being active on those platforms. But doing it in a right way, where you're building a community, you're telling stories, you're not just pitching and advertising to take a demo. Again, you, you, we're selling to educators. These are mission-driven people. They wanna hear success stories. They wanna hear those stories. They wanna hear underrepresented populations finding success. And marketing is that storytelling tool to convey those results, to convey that ROI, to convey that impact more than any cold email could ever possibly do.
1: What about field marketing and convention spaces? I mean, I was at ISTE and the ratio of booths and people manning the booths to the people actually going around on the convention floor is like one-to-one. And I was like, oh my gosh, the spend on these booths versus the ROI in terms of converting, it's really hard to imagine. At the same time, maybe there's some brand building where people just getting awareness. Do you feel like, you know, the classic go to a conference, get a booth, is that dead? Or is that still a vital tool for organizations in their marketing?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think if I put on my sales hat right now, I think... You know, when you meet someone in person and you build rapport with someone, like that, that helps from a sales side. Now, if you're just going to sell and just go to these events and pitch, 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 there's only so much people will take from that, right? And so I think I'm actually going to be dropping an article on LinkedIn, but I think, you know, these in-person events are also a great way to capture content that could be used far beyond the event, right? So, if if you're running a booth and a couple of your existing customers come up to your booth and, you know, they're happy to see you, they have a lot of positive things to say, you know, would it hurt to have a videographer there to sort of capture that and to capture their testimonials and to capture their energy and their excitement when they see that, that EdTech brand that they've been a, a loyal customer to? So... I look at it from like a content perspective, right? Like this is an area, a place where we can all meet and get some really good content. But to your point, like they're also really expensive to attend. And so you really have to weigh out the cost benefit of like, we're spending this, what's the ROI from that? So I think if you add like a, a content piece to it, or you're capturing content while you're out there, in addition to building these partnerships That's kind of where the snowball effect takes place. But I mean, they're expensive, right? Like how many ed tech startups could actually afford to go out and and get a booth? I mean, that's thousands and thousands of dollars that you might be able to use elsewhere, right? So,
1: Yeah, and I think there's a degree to which, like, are you presenting at the conference? And, you know, being a thought leader in the space, then are you... I love this idea that the booth is not the output. The booth is actually the funnel to get to drive input and content i think that's a great point alex what what questions are coming up for you
0: what it makes me think of you know you're mentioning tiktok instagram reels all of these really you know relatively new social media platforms as a as a model for edtech companies to reach their users i think that's fascinating and i'm curious if which types of users are reached through those? I always think of TikTok as something that would maybe reach the students, reach very young people. But are you seeing teachers or administrators or principals or, you know, higher ed professionals finding content through new media like
2: TikTok? Yeah, you know, that's one of the biggest misconceptions about TikTok is it's just Gen Z and millennials. When in fact, let me give you an example. My mom she's a retired elementary school teacher, 30 years, she spends an ungodly amount of time on TikTok. And I could only imagine how many other retired teachers or principals or that older demographic that enjoys the content on there, because it is good content, right? And so I think marketers and founders really need to wake up to see, hey, there's reach on here, there's eyeballs on here. And it's not just, you know, kids dancing or twerking, right? Like, there's a lot of ed tech brands on there. There's just a lot of teachers on there, right? There's a lot of students on there. So if you think about how do I build a community? How can I get in front of, you know, teachers, students? It's a great place as a as an advertiser to be. There's a lot of attention on there, even today in 2023.
1: Yeah, so we're kind of dealing with this ed tech winter. And one of the kind of big refrains right now is product-led growth and like, cutting budgets and one of the first places people tend to cut is marketing which you know raises concerns about you know what's the revenue stability or growth going to be if you're you're cutting that but there's a certain mentality that if if you have product-led growth you don't need marketing the product itself will help you grow virally how do you when you're talking to somebody who's in that product-led growth mindset How do you talk about the value of marketing? How how should they be thinking about it?
2: I think if you're focusing on PLG product-led growth, I think marketing is actually your best friend. because Typically, PLG companies, you you can sign up for a free trial immediately. You could start using the tool immediately. So it's like the barriers to entry are very low. Now, how do we drive more traffic? How do we get more teachers to sign up from it, right, from a sales side? It's really easy to go to an administrator and say, hey, 1,500 of your teachers signed up for a free trial. Let's have a conversation about getting this in the whole district, right? And so if you have product-led growth, if there are low barriers of entry for teachers to sign up, to try the tool, right? Marketing is only going to open the floodgates for that. There's a lot of teachers on social media. And there's, to your point, there's a lot of competition, right? There's a lot of edtech tools within specific categories. So there's already a lot of literacy options. There's already a lot of tutoring options. So what are edtech brands going to do to differentiate themselves? But again, also just drive that traffic, drive that awareness. If you, again, are leaning on PLG, where teachers can sign up immediately, right? So like those teacher signups are valuable. They may not be decision makers, but if you can build a case for an administrator, that's going to lead to those big district deals that bring in the money for ed tech startups. So... We're seeing
0: this week some districts and schools start to get a little panicky about some of these new technologies. We've seen a lot of universities banning TikTok in the last few weeks, and now we're seeing K-12 districts banning ChatGPT. I know you are a ChatGPT fan and something you think about it a lot and an interesting sort of storytelling. I'm curious how you see the role of ChatGPT and how ed tech founders might use it to sharpen their stories or or to improve their marketing.
2: It's actually mind-blowing what ChatGPT is capable of. I think I, I shared with you Alex like just very quickly on a on a call, but it, it actually it, it's I would say one of the most transformational tools or just changes in like marketing in in the technological world that we live in. Because now my ideas can go further than ever before, right? You can write blog posts, you can write social media copy, you can write email copy, and it's just a really good place to to get your ideas out there and then you have something to work with and run with. And so as a copywriter, as a marketer, right, this is actually a, a valuable tool that is not only saving time for us, but it's, it's allowing our ideas to go further than ever before and you know, are there challenges with forgery and and all of the, you know, potential risks that students are making like essays and turning it in? Absolutely. But we, we have to lean into technology because kids are already using it. They They probably are already using it for school, right? So it's like, how do we lean into this technology and advance the human race, advance what we're capable of doing so that we don't have to spend our time doing just like, Menial tasks, right? Like now we can write a blog in two seconds, right? We don't need to hire a copywriter and pay them a full time salary, right? So I think that there's a lot of pros to what this tool is capable of. And we're really only at the beginning of what ChatGPT and AI is capable of. So I'm really excited about that.
1: Yeah. Given where we are today, you know, we're in the middle of this sales cycle. So, you know, January, February, March, April, this is crunch time for a lot of ed tech companies. And ChatGPT as a tool, you can kind of create your prompt and input. But I do think a lot of entrepreneurs are struggling with how to operationalize the unlock for AI uh, assistive uh, programs. You know, do you recommend that people look at something like Jasper AI, which is, uh, you know, Jasper basically is built for marketers to drive content generation? It's expensive, you know, on the order of like, I think 70 bucks a month or something like that. And then it integrates with your email outbound and so on. Is that where they should be going or should it still be more experimental? And as a leader at an ed tech firm, should you be really kind of driving everyone and saying, here's how we're going to use AI in our marketing and outreach? Or is it like, hey, everyone be creative. Let us know what's working a little bit more of a, you know, try as you go. What's your read on that?
2: Yeah, I think a lot of people think chat GPT or AI is like the end all be all. But I like to look at it as like, it's a it's just a tool to just help you advance what you're doing or or help you with what you're doing. It's not the end all be all. What I'm noticing is there's actually going to be a lot of AI tools flooding the market right now. And right now chat GPT is free and it's the most popular one. My best advice if, if you're trying to like get started or learn, just mess around with it. Like Ask it questions that you wouldn't think it would be able to populate a response for. And you'll be surprised. As an example, my girlfriend right now, she's in law school and she was kind of skeptical about it. And I was just showing her, hey, like, look, you can ask it to summarize things for you. You can ask it to respond to emails. She was a little hesitant at first. I showed it to her. She was blown away what it was capable of. And I caught her a few times yesterday actually using it, you know, to save her some time or to you know, summarize things, right? So like, it's it's a helpful tool. And I think initially, if you don't really understand AI, you kind of have this like, this barrier, this like, this kind of, whoa, hesitation about it. But I'm, I'm telling you, just try it out ask it a couple questions, ask it to write a blog about spaghetti and meatballs and ed tech, And you'll like, you'll be surprised like what it's able, what it's capable of. So I would say just like lean into it and just try it, get your, get your toes wet a little bit. And I think that alone will just kind of build that excitement and, and the rest kind of sells itself, you know?
0: I love that attitude. And it feels like that's a great through line uh, to this conversation, you know, don't consider all these new media and tools intimidating or scary. A lot of them are inexpensive, even free, like ChatGPT. Jump in, try them. You never know. And you're going to reach people, you know, more than you expect to reach through the TikToks, through the Instagrams, through the, you know, through the use of ChatGPT and other unusual channels. Mateo Alvira, really, really, really interesting conversation. I'm sure our listeners are writing things down left and right about their marketing uh, ideas. Thanks so much for being here with us at EdTech Insiders. Appreciate you guys having me on. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of EdTech Insiders. If you like the podcast, remember to rate it and share it with others in the EdTech community. For those who want even more EdTech Insider, subscribe to the free EdTech Insiders newsletter
1: on Substack.